26 on the periodic table, and it's the most abundant element on Earth, even more common than oxygen. That commonality is the consequence of a planetary crust heavily laden with iron, and it makes up the majority of Earth's inner and outer cores as well. Iron metal is relatively rare in the portion of the Earth to which we have access, the crust. We found bits and pieces here and there, mostly from asteroid impacts, but metallic iron otherwise must be refined using very high heat, temperatures in the 1500 degrees Celsius or 2730 degrees Fahrenheit range. And that's what allows us to take iron ore, which is iron mixed with other rocks and minerals, and process it into a more pure metallic state. And this is why, despite that overwhelming abundance of iron, technically available throughout many long-populated regions, it took a while before our ancestors started to refine and wield it for various purposes, kicking off the Iron Age. Bronze only requires temperatures of around 500 degrees Celsius, which is about 932 degrees Fahrenheit, so something like a third the temperature required base level to do anything meaningful to iron. It then took us a while to be able to make and control fire hot enough to productively work with it. Steel is an alloy made primarily of iron, but with a bunch of carbon added into the mix, alongside, in some cases, other substances like chromium, which can give it other properties and powers. Fundamentally, though, just like cast iron and wrought iron, steel is refined iron, made more potent, in this case by making it less ductile less soft and reshapable. That means it's more difficult and energy-intensive to work with steel, but the resulting product is also a lot more useful, strength-wise, and in the case of steel with chromium added to the mix, usually called stainless steel, a resistance to oxygen and corrosion as well. Iron and the super-iron steel have been important historically since way back in 3500 BC-ish when meteor-derived iron was periodically discovered and highly treasured, at times even worshipped or serving as an accompaniment to worship, and even more so from around 1500 BC when iron was smelted by the Hittites, building on earlier know-how from neighboring and precursor civilizations. Both materials remain vital today, though, for purposes ranging from the building of ship hulls to the manufacturing of exercise equipment to the construction of skyscrapers. These metals are just incredibly strong, infinitely shapeable, and in the case of steel alloys in particular, often quite lightweight for the durability they offer, all of which is wonderful, except that their production is massively polluting and in particular, massively emitting in terms of CO2. It takes gobs of energy to produce these metals, and it tends to require the most polluting types of energy to do so. And that's out of tradition, making full use of existing infrastructure, but also because generating consistent high heats is generally cheaper and easier, using existing technologies at least, with fossil fuels like coal, which is the most polluting of the most common fuel types today. This is an even bigger issue than for other industries that are heavily reliant on such fuels because, again, steel and iron are just incredibly useful for so many purposes. 
As a species, we churn out gobs of steel alone every year, and just 553 of the world's currently operating steel plants, which is about 82% of our total global capacity for making steel, produce around 9% of the world's CO2 emissions. And that goes up to 11% if you include iron production as well. What I'd like to talk about today is how innovations in another common, massively polluting and emitting construction material could take a significant chunk out of our global CO2 emissions figures. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Bloomberg, and it's entitled, At COP27, Building Emissions Loom Larger. COP27, which started the first week of November 2022 and finished up a few weeks later, was the 27th annual convention orchestrated by the United Nations with the intention of getting governments around the world to agree on climate-related goals, milestones, and policies. Previous COP meetings, COP standing for Conference of the Parties, have resulted in things like the Kyoto Protocol, which was the first real deal agreement between almost every country on the planet to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, signed in 1997 and enacted in 2005, and the more recent Paris Agreement, which was adopted in 2015 and covers a swath of climate issues from finance to adaptation to actual mitigation, all with the intended goal of keeping global average temperature increases below 2 degrees Celsius at the maximum, and more ideally below 1.5 degrees Celsius, though that latter goal is looking less and less achievable by the year. So this newest instance of this ongoing conference series built upon past discussions and policy agreements, and though it's generally considered to have been a consolidative, iterative meeting rather than a revolutionary one, No one was really surprised by what was discussed, and no major new agreements were signed. It did provide yet another check-in opportunity for world leaders to see how they're doing, and importantly, to see how they're doing in the context of previous meetings and the goals set therein, and how they're doing compared to each other. One of the major topics discussed at this and previous COP meetings is the issue of responsibility and payout. Basically, some countries are more responsible for the human-amplified components of climate change than others, and those most responsible, like European nations, the U.S., and China, are those that have done the most developing and building over the past few hundred years. For a while, European nations were growing economically faster than anyone else on the planet. Then the U.S. took up that baton, industrialized more and faster than anyone else for a while. And now China has done the same, replacing the U.S. as the world's biggest emitter, though still lagging slightly behind in terms of overall total lifetime emissions. Though at their current pace, they will replace the U.S. as the number one historical overall emitter as well. Important to this conversation, though, is recognizing that this growth, this economic development that leads to all these additional emissions, is tied to things that we would generally consider to be positive. Quality of life, literacy, and levels of education, and healthcare, and lifespan, and self-reported levels of happiness and satisfaction 
all of these things generally go up as development across other more quantifiable spheres like invention and innovation, manufacturing capacity, economic output in terms of goods and services, and average incomes increase. So more work of all kinds being done, people becoming wealthier, having higher expectations of what they can achieve, accomplish, and afford, and that under our current paradigm just happens to also be tied to emissions. Because historically, one of the simplest ways to increase your economic leverage is to generate more energy, which again, under the current paradigm at least, means burning more fossil fuels to release the energy they contain. So the more fossil fuels mined and pumped, refined, and burned for fuel, the higher a country's output, in general, anyway. And that output is then converted into wealth, and that wealth, in some cases, migrates to the top, making a few very wealthy while everyone else languishes. But in the aforementioned cases of broad development, that wealth is also spread out pretty widely, increasing everyone's overall well-being across a variety of metrics, even if there are people at the top who still take an outsized portion. What we have, then, is a situation in which an arguably good thing Social and economic development is linked with an arguably bad thing, that is, the emission of gases and other substances that are altering the planet in such a way that it will become less livable for humans and the various flora and fauna we've evolved alongside. One way to solve this problem of human welfare being tied to emissions is to decouple our well-being from the generation of energy using messy greenhouse gas-emitting methods. This is already being done on a historically wide scale as we deploy more solar, wind, hydro, geothermal, arguably nuclear, and other such non-fossil fuel energy sources. If you can power a society using renewables in this way, people and business entities can benefit from energy abundance without contributing to those climate-related issues while also benefiting from cleaner air, non-polluted ecosystems, and other such outcomes. And this works well for most use cases, especially once you convert a society's infrastructure over to electrical versions of what is already there. Swapping out gas-powered infrastructure with electrical stuff and replacing petroleum-powered vehicles with electric cars and trucks and vans and trains allows you to produce straight-up electricity via solar panels and geothermal. And that cuts out a middleman because you no longer have to burn those fossil fuels to generate electricity and you thus avoid all those emissions associated with that type of energy production. So this is more efficient in many ways, but also cleaner and non-emitting in the ways we care about related to the topic of climate change. The downside of this approach, as it exists and is most common today at least, is that for some energy use cases, fossil fuel-derived energy is better, at least in the sense of potency and efficiency. Warming up homes in cold climates, for instance, is an energy-intensive process if you're using electricity and converting that electricity into heat. Generating heat from burning fossil fuels tends to be more efficient for that use case, and thus swapping out heating systems can sometimes result in more power usage, even if the power being generated is cleaner. And that can sometimes have higher monetary costs, at least until there is electricity abundance in the relevant region, which can take a while to build out, or until everyone swaps out their furnaces for heat pumps, which is what several countries are trying to do, though at a decently large one-time expense, mostly but not exclusively being paid out in the form of incentives by the government. 
Similarly, airplanes require a significant amount of energy to take off and stay aloft for the duration of a trip, and current methods of storing energy, carrying a bunch of fossil fuels and fuel tanks and burning it along the way, allows absolutely massive vehicles to travel through the sky vast distances. Electric planes are trickier because you can't plug them into an outlet and draw unlimited quantities of electricity from the grid. Today, at least, you have to carry all of your energy with you, which means, in the case of contemporary electricity-related options, carrying giant batteries. Batteries are heavy, though, and you can produce more energy per pound of jet fuel than you can pull electricity from a battery weighing the same amount. That's a pound-for-pound comparison of energy storage density. And though there are major downsides associated with jet fuel, namely greenhouse gas emissions and the various pollutants it spews into the air, that energy density hasn't yet been matched in batteries. So while there are small, lightweight electric planes in operation today, their range is quite limited. Their carrying capacity is also limited. And in their current incarnation, at least, they seem to be most useful for unmanned, non-passenger hauling purposes. Because then you can make them ultra-lightweight, and in some cases put solar panels on them, so they can constantly be recharging, using photons from the sun to continuously top off a relatively small and lightweight battery. The takeaway here, then, is that while we need for a variety of reasons, but most pressingly climate-related reasons, to shift away from fossil fuels as rapidly as possible, there are some use cases for which clean, renewable energy sources have not yet been invented or optimized. And that's a problem because a lot of these use cases are highly greenhouse gas-emitting. One such problematic industry is the world of construction, building buildings and other sorts of infrastructure like roads and bridges and sidewalks. And as I mentioned in the intro, steel in particular, and iron to a lesser but still substantial degree, are massive polluters that are going to be tricky to produce without fossil fuels, at least in the short term. There are examples out there of cars and other products being made with so-called green steel, where the manufacturing process has been recalibrated so the extreme heat required is produced with clean sources rather than fossil fuels. But those are the exception right now, and those aforementioned 553 steel plants that are producing 9% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions all by themselves will take a while to swap out, decommission, or renovate appropriately because of the labor and costs and politics involved. But steel is not the only building ingredient that makes building stuff so emittive. Concrete, which is the combination of cement and granules of other stuff like gravel and sand, is the most widely deployed building material on the planet by a fair margin. Twice as much concrete is deployed each year as steel, wood, and all types of plastic and aluminum combined. The production process for the binding agent of concrete, cement, accounts for about 8% of all global greenhouse emissions. And because concrete is so widely used and so incredibly useful for all sorts of building purposes, it's expected that this figure will only increase in the coming years, in part because of normal building patterns, in part because a lot more sturdier structures will be needed as the climate continues to shift and buildings are either renovated or freshly constructed in new areas or to replace destroyed ones in the paths of hurricanes, and they'll need to be rebuilt in such a way that they can survive hurricane-force winds and floods and tornadoes and extreme temperature events, which requires a lot of concrete. 
and because many parts of the world are growing wealthier. And as I mentioned earlier, that tends to lead to a higher quality of life for more people, which in turn tends to mean a greater need for housing and office buildings and power plants. So this is already a super emittive industry, but it's likely to become even more so because of not good things like natural disasters and because of arguably good things like people being pulled out of poverty and thus needing more stuff, including more and better quality shelter and other types of infrastructure like sewers and flood barriers. This industry then, which if you expand the range of what we're looking at to encompass all types of building and the maintenance of our built environments, by some estimates accounts for around 40% of all greenhouse gas emissions globally, which is astonishing if you think about it. And consequently, this industry is an important target for climate-related amelioration and innovation. As such, there are many efforts in the works to make cement, that core ingredient of concrete, greener. The lowest hanging fruit in this industry is arguably found in the fact that cement production, like steel production, requires very high temperatures, and that typically means using fossil fuels to produce said heat, because it's just a lot more efficient to generate those kinds of temperatures in that way. And that's if you can even pump enough electricity into a given space with just electrical infrastructure to get temperatures high enough, which is not at all guaranteed using current technologies. Some companies have started using what amounts to plasma torches to reach those temperatures with just electrical inputs, which involves passing an electrical current through a jet of inert gas like nitrogen or argon, while others are using hydrogen, which is a gas that occurs naturally, but which can also be produced using greener methods, usually by breaking water into hydrogen and oxygen. In either case, hydrogen can reduce the carbon footprint of the companies using it by something like 40%, which isn't nothing especially at this scale. Most of the CO2 emissions associated with cement, though, are related to the substance itself, not how it is created. There's some low-hanging fruit here, too, as manufacturers can cut about 10% of their CO2 emissions just by adding a type of powdered limestone to their final product. This approach is common in Europe already, and slowly becoming more common in the U.S. and other markets as well. Some manufacturers are also using industrial waste products in their concrete instead of fresh materials that require harvesting and refining, including fly ash from coal power plants, which incentivizes the capture of more emissions from such plants while also avoiding any emissions associated with producing the additives that are otherwise required. One big, still somewhat theoretical, but increasingly supported by research and experimentation option, however, involves replacing calcium carbonate, which is a key ingredient in one of the most common types of cement today, with other materials. Geopolymers, for instance, give cement somewhat different properties when it's being deployed, but otherwise has basically the same strength profile as conventional cement in some cases actually making the resulting concrete stronger than conventional concrete, while also reducing the material's total carbon footprint by up to 80%. And taking the general concept even further, new types of cement currently in production not only produce less CO2 during manufacture and deployment, they actually sequester CO2 as they set and harden. They pull it from the air and store it in their mass. A company called EcoCement, for instance, makes a cement that uses a mineral called magnesia as a reactive, 
which requires a far lower kiln temperature, which means less power is required to produce it, and also means it's easier to use electricity to do so, rather than fossil fuels. But it also absorbs CO2 from the atmosphere as it hardens, rather than creating CO2, off-gassing it during the same period, which is typical for other types of cement and a big part of why they are so emittive. That makes this approach appealing to companies that want to benefit from government incentive programs while also providing alternatives to building companies keen to align themselves with 2050 net zero emissions goals. Carbon drawdown capacity is a rare attribute in any substance, but it's an especially tempting attribute in a material as widely used as cement. And it's a fair bet that most of these building companies are not using traditional cement because they like emitting tons of CO2. They're doing it because there are no economically viable alternatives currently. Now, the downside of EcoCement's approach is that magnesite, from whence magnesia is produced, is not mined in a widespread consistent fashion, which is arguably the case for anything not currently commonly used by some industry or another, but it's a real concern and consideration, as there could be serious downsides to such mining, and it could be that a true scale-up to the level required to make this a suitable replacement for today's cement simply isn't feasible. We don't know enough to know whether these downsides would be significant enough to hinder the production of such cement, or if this material is even available and harvestable in suitable quantities to scale this effort up. It's also possible that simply reducing the amount of cement we use would make more sense than trying to make cement itself more eco-friendly. I did an episode a few months ago on mass timber, which is a type of wood product that is produced in such a way that it has similar properties to concrete and steel, depending on how you process it, alongside some benefits that concrete and steel likely won't ever be able to match. And there are approaches being refined by a few international groups to produce cement with a graphene suspension in it, which would have the ultimate effect of allowing buildings to use about half as much cement volume as usual, to accomplish the same stability and coverage outcomes, which would, of course, reduce the amount of CO2 emissions by about half as well, alongside any other innovations that are included with that suspension difference, like, for instance, using electric vehicles to haul the concrete from place to place, knocking a not insignificant chunk of currently required CO2 emissions from that larger tab. It's an interesting time in the building and building materials space right now, as there are countless opportunities to trim greenhouse gas emission overhead from all of these somewhat old and well-entrenched processes, which thus represent a real economic opportunity for those willing to do the R&D and make the proper investments. Again, the market for building things and renovating and upgrading is likely to expand, maybe dramatically, for the foreseeable future. So there's a huge customer base for all of this, and it could be that in the next handful of years, cement looks more or less the same, but possibly gets stronger, while maybe even becoming part of the emissions solution, rather than representing a significant portion of the problem, as is the case today. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel. 
I won't give away too many details of this book except to say that it is a novel. It takes place across several different time periods, and the characters involved are interconnected in interesting, unusual, somewhat novel ways. And they're all trying to solve a variety of puzzles, and those puzzles are part of what connect them to each other. But the time spans are really quite vast. And consequently, you get to read a variety of stories in one that are also tied into one somewhat unified, larger story. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of my other work at understandread.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.